Hello, listeners, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm your host, Lucy West. I'm a cardiology clinical pharmacist at Tufts Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Today, we're going back to basics and chatting with our amazing guests about what heart failure is. We're pleased to be joined today by Emily Benton, nurse practitioner at UC Health in Colorado, and Dr. Ran Lee, advanced heart failure and critical care cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Lucy, for that welcome, and great to be here. All right, so we're going to jump right in if you guys are ready. The purpose of this podcast episode is to really break down the basics of heart failure, or overall, how the heart functions. What does it mean? How does it happen? And what should patients look out for in terms of signs and symptoms of worsening disease? So Dr. Lee, let's start with you. Let's have you take us back to the beginning and where it all begins. What causes heart dysfunction? Uh, That's a great question, Lucy, and I think it's a good place to start off. And before we talk about specific causes of heart dysfunction, I think it's important to kind of recognize for the purposes of the disease of heart failure, we try to think of different insults to the heart muscle that can occur. So for example, an individual might have a heart attack or have blockages in their arteries that supply blood flow to the heart muscle. This can lead to the heart muscle over time getting weaker and being dysfunctional and causing signs and symptoms of this disease that we call heart failure. That's a pretty common cause. But we also have a whole lot of other causes for someone's heart muscle to become weak, whether that's exposure to toxins, whether that's genetics, whether it's previous infection from a virus that we weren't able to detect, and people's heart muscles can get weak related to all of those different types of reasons. The other type of heart failure that exists is one in which the heart muscle is strong and can pump blood to the rest of the body without any difficulty, but gets stiff over time and has a problem relaxing. And so there are a lot of diseases kind of almost wear and tear that the body can accumulate over a person's lifespan that can cause the heart muscle to become dysfunctional and still lead to signs and symptoms of heart failure, diseases like obesity or high blood pressure or diabetes. Thank you so much for starting us off with that description. What I think you're telling me is that not all heart dysfunctions are created the same. Absolutely. And I would say, roughly speaking, the rates of individuals with the kind of weaker pumping function type of heart failure and the not able to relax stiffer form of heart failure are almost equivalent. Wow. Okay. Now, Dr. Lee, can you tell us what does HEF-REF mean and how does it differ from heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEF-PEF? That's a very good question, Lucy. And what I would say is there's a kind of a technical definition cutoff that we think about, and it's really in the name of those abbreviations. So HEF-REF or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, we strictly can define that based on the ejection fraction or kind of the percentage that gets reported on an individual's ultrasound of the heart or echocardiogram. That essentially tells us how well someone can deliver blood to the rest of their body 
by that test. And so ejection fraction is essentially our initial gauge of the strength of someone's heart. And the technical cutoff is 40% to define someone as having heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So individuals less than that percentage. And then individuals above 50% are defined as individuals with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The normal is, is typically 55 to 65 is how I define it to patients. So they get a sense that 55 to 65% on an ultrasound report is essentially 100% normal. So there's that technical definition, but also how we think about HEF-REF versus HEF-PEF is a little bit different, kind of going back to the first question. The individuals with reduced ejection fraction fit a category where we have different causes and different treatments that we think about to help individuals when their heart muscle is weak. And we broadly start thinking about, well, the individuals with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEF-PEF as having kind of the more normal pumping function, but difficulty with relaxation and still can get the signs and symptoms of heart failure that individuals with weaker heart muscles can have. So there's both a technical definition, but also just a broader how we think about the disease state differently. So you started to talk to us a little bit about the ejection fraction or what some people call EF for short. Emily, can you talk to us a little bit more about these numbers? Like, why is it so important that we check and monitor this number? How often should it be assessed? Should patients know what this number is and what it means? Yeah, those are really great questions. So as Dr. Lee did a really great job describing, there's two different camps that we kind of separate what this ejection fraction helps us with. And the reason why it's so important is that more specifically for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, we have a lot of new guideline-directed therapies that have been shown to dramatically improve outcomes and survival with heart failure. So if you had a heart attack and you have an ejection fraction that's less than 40%, we want to do our best to get you on these medicines that give you the best chance to recover that ejection fraction. And then to differentiate between reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction helps your provider make the right treatment choices for that. Why this is so important to know, and it's kind of hard, I try to tell people from provider perspective, also for patients, is that we kind of hone in on this ejection fraction to help determine treatment. And we do want you to understand that it's important to know this number, but that number is not the only thing that defines how you're doing living with your heart failure. So it's really hard to not get fixated on that number. And sometimes people can live a very normal life with an ejection fraction of 20%. Some people work a full-time job with an ejection fraction of 10%, but they feel fine. And you can have someone that has an EF of 30% and they're not doing well. So while it's important to know what your number is, it's equally important to know that you're feeling good and you're doing good and even your lab work looks good. So while this number is not normal for people living with heart failure or have PEF, it's how the patient feels and how they're responding to medication. So when we make a new diagnosis of HEF-REF or a reduced ejection fraction, we often don't check an echocardiogram to see what the ejection fraction is within a couple of months after therapy, unless we have a clinical indication to do that. 
And part of that is that it will take time for these medicines to help rebuild the heart muscle and hopefully we'll get some recovery from there. But sometimes it can be really depressing to the patients and they can feel like things are not going well if you redo this echo and there's no change in that number. But if they're staying out of the hospital, they're tolerating their medicines and their lab work is stable. Those are all reassuring signs, despite if that EF does not change. So it's really important to understand if your number is lower or not doing well, that's good, but not to get fixated on it if the patient is doing well and tolerating things. So I think it's kind of a double-edged sword with doing that, being comfortable with knowing what your number is, but not getting preoccupied if it isn't changing from month to month. So usually providers will do an, an echo you know, usually at least every six months, sometimes three months. And then if we have a hospitalization or an indication to repeat one before, then your provider will probably do that. But it's just important to understand what that number means and then to help your provider look at how you're tolerating your medicines is the two things that go together to determine what we can do going forward. Thank you so much for that explanation, Emily. I think it's really important that patients understand what their EF is. And like you said, you know, some folks, their ejection fraction can improve, but it's really important that we use the combination of that ejection fraction with how patients are feeling to assess their overall quality of life and how they're doing from a, a clinical standpoint. Now, Dr. Lee, you mentioned this just briefly earlier, but I think it's an important topic to go back to. I get this question a lot, whether or not heart dysfunction is genetic. Are there certain types of heart failure that are genetic? If so, when should patients consider having relatives get tested or who can they talk to about this? Yeah, so going back to what I had referenced before, we have a significant number of patients who have cardiomyopathies or heart muscle diseases that cause weakening that are not explained by the causes that I mentioned before, like blockages in the arteries. There's a, up to a 30, 40% chance that a gene could be an explanation for this. And this was published back in 2011 by Dr. Hirschberger from Ohio State. And so there are up to you know 40 genes that have been identified that if any of them are not working properly can cause someone's heart muscle to be weak. And so what I usually reference my patients to is if we've explored a lot of different reasons for why someone's heart muscle may be dysfunctional, may be weaker, and we cannot find an attributable cause that seeing a genetic counselor to talk about the risks and benefits of undergoing genetic testing and proceeding with genetic testing is typically advisable because we may find a genetic mutation that is the culprit for the patient's disease. And so I often do advise that as part of the workup for when someone comes to see me and says, look, we've found a new diagnosis of heart failure or cardiomyopathy, and we can't find any other reason why. In terms of when to get relatives tested, there are screening guidelines for first-degree relatives who are at risk for having the same genetic mutation. And so if individuals don't wish to pursue genetic testing and they have a known first-degree relative who has tested positive, I think depending on your age, there's different intervals that have been recommended 
to at least undergo what we call clinical screening. So a visit with a doctor, a history of physical exam, some basic testing, including an EKG and an echocardiogram, get to be advised and individuals who at least want a checkup if they don't want to pursue the genetic testing. Thank you so much for that explanation. Now, Emily, I'm going to turn it back over to you now. I know that when I talk to patients, they often remember how they felt when they first started having signs and symptoms of heart dysfunction. And honestly, they really know themselves best. They'll sometimes tell us, you know, my blood pressure is always around this number, or I always carry my water in my legs. I'm sure some of the patients listening know exactly what we're talking about. But what are the most common signs and symptoms that can indicate to someone that it's time to talk to their doctor or get checked out or at what point they should consider, you know, escalating their care? That's really great questions. So as you already said, patients know themselves the best, especially when this is a new diagnosis. I think it's really hard for patients and their families to wrap their head around the fact that they've just been told that their heart is not working correctly. So once we get them feeling better or get the extra volume off, that's where we start the education process of what this looks like. And one of the big things that heart failure patients usually complain about is shortness of breath or activity intolerance. So are you able to walk up a flight of stairs and do so without stopping? Can you lie flat in your bed and breathe comfortably? Or are you using a lot of pillows to help elevate your head so you can breathe easy? Are you sleeping in a chair at night because it's easier to breathe? Shortness of breath is one of the biggest things that we can focus in as providers and then patients can tell those symptoms to us. Fatigue is a big thing that heart failure people struggle with. And sometimes they can be fatigued just because their body is adjusting to the new medication regimen that they're on. But sometimes fatigue comes from their blood pressure not being good enough to circulate the blood for them. And so that's why it's really important to get them to understand, to check their blood pressure and to call that in if it's not going at a normal pace for them. So sometimes we target lower blood pressures for heart failure patients because that makes it easier for the heart to circulate the blood around the body if there's less resistance in there. And so when a heart failure patient's discharged, we usually give them parameters to call their heart failure team with. So if you have a, a systolic blood pressure, which is the top number of your blood pressure, if that's below 90 and you're feeling dizzy or super tired or cannot do activities, that's a reason to call your heart failure team or vice versa. We'll give a high blood pressure number. If you go above 140 and you stay there, those are reasons to give that. So really important to see what the fatigue level is, what your breathing level is. And then the, the swelling. Swelling usually goes alongside with HEF-REF or reduced ejection fraction. When it's a brand new diagnosis, they're not aware of where they're retaining fluid. They just think they've been gaining weight for a period of time. And despite them not eating or watching what they're eating, they were still gaining weight. So once we get all that extra fluid off, that's what we call your dry weight. And that's what we try to get you on a pill form of a diuretic to do that. So it's really important to weigh yourself every day and see what that weight is so that you can help determine how you're feeling with your symptoms. And people usually retain fluid either in their legs or in their abdomen. Sometimes it goes one or the other, and sometimes it's together. But if you start to feel really bloated or your pants aren't fitting right, or when you take off your socks, you've got really big indentions in your legs um, and you've got really swollen legs or ankles. Those are things to give us a call about. And so those are big things that family members can usually watch if the patient can't see their feet or their legs, or they're just not monitoring that 
their families and caregivers can help with that too. So I'd say shortness of breath, fatigue, and blood pressure are the biggest things to go from there. And then nutrition is one of those things that if you're looking at the spectrum of diagnosis, you know, when people are initially diagnosed with heart failure, usually they don't have a lot of changes in their diet. They're learning what to eat to keep a heart healthy diet, but it's when we get further down the road and heart failure that we see the appetite change and people usually are not eating what they need to on a daily basis just because their stomach doesn't get the perfusion or blood flow that it needs. And so they eat a bite and they get full quicker. So if we see a diet intake reduction and they're losing muscle mass or just getting full fast, those are things to give a call about. And so I think as far as escalating your care, that's kind of a tricky question. It's really good to develop a good relationship with your cardiologist and your heart failure team once you're diagnosed with that. But from a patient and a family perspective, when you are increasing your clinic visits because you're not tolerating your medications or you're not feeling well or you're not doing well from a heart failure perspective, that's one way to ask maybe are there other treatment options more advanced or different medications. But also if you start to have hospitalizations related to your heart failure and it's to get extra volume off, or if you require IV medicines or an inotrope like dobutamine or milrinone, those are always big red flags to heart failure teams that it's time to consider other treatment options like a transplant or LVAD if that's appropriate for you. And that's why it's really important for patients and families to have good relationships with their providers to help feel comfortable to have those discussions, but then to say, are there other options or not? One of the themes we've heard throughout all of these podcasts is the importance of the patient and provider relationship and making sure that the patient is always communicating back to the clinical care team. And if there's anything changing, you know, letting everyone know. So I think what you said about reporting back those symptoms and what to look out for is so important. During our last episode, we talked about how there is a transition being made to use the term heart function rather than heart failure, as the word failure often has a very negative connotation and may indicate that the heart is broken. Despite the push for the shift, the term heart failure is still commonly used and, as we have seen, can be scary to hear. Dr. Lee, can you talk to us about the prognosis associated with heart failure? Thanks, Lucy, for that question. I I completely agree. I think just how medicine has worked, we've focused on diseases rather than focusing on the patients. And I think we're starting to change that, focusing on optimizing someone's function rather than the failure part of this disease gets to be really important. Emily had said something earlier in the podcast, which is extremely important. The treatments that we have available now in terms of cutting edge medications and guideline directed therapies have done a great job in improving the potential for increasing someone's lifespan with this disease. In many cases, we are able to really kind of remodel the heart in a positive manner with these medications so that they can get some function back and improve their prognosis over time. Even in individuals who may stay at lower ejection fraction, for example, can still have a great 
lifespan, a great quality of life on these medications. And so we've been able to do a, a really good job of providing that benefit to our patients with the use of medications and medical therapy for this disease. I think what we also really focus on is in the individuals that continue to have issues or struggle with symptoms similar to the ones Emily had talked about, fast recognition of the inability to stay out of the hospital or come back to the doctor's office or an urgent care setting repeatedly is a warning sign for us so that we can kind of act quickly to talk about next steps beyond medications that we're able to offer to improve someone's both quality and quantity of life. And Dr. Lee, I wanted to add to what you said, which is I think it's really important to have great conversations with your provider at all levels, whether it's a new diagnosis or you're living and having a great quality of life with your heart failure, feeling comfortable enough to tell your providers that things are going well or not going well helps us treat you better and optimize where you are in your heart failure trajectory. And so I think changing the name and the stigma associated with heart failure is really important because that can cause a lot of depression with patients and their caregivers, and they feel a sense of doom being diagnosed with this. But actually, the new therapies that are coming out are really promising, and people are doing really well with that. But when we don't have our eyes on you all the time, it's really helpful for you to feel comfortable and say, hey, this is what's going on at home. Or even sometimes the hard part of the discussions is like saying, I don't feel comfortable going forward with this. And it's okay to say no, but we want to have a, a relationship that is open to have those discussions because that helps be a more tailored treatment that's successful for patients and families. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's sometimes overlooked and patients don't always feel this way, but patients are just as important, if not the most important member of the care team. And so having that say and speaking up in the decision-making is so, so important. Dr. Lee or Emily, anything either of you want to add? No, I think this has been a great experience talking with you all about this topic. This is an area that's obviously very near and dear to my professional life and in treating patients uh, far and wide with this condition. And we're very optimistic about being able to help every individual living with heart failure to live the longest and most fruitful life that they can. So I think this was a, a great experience talking about what we can offer for patients. I enjoyed it as well. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. This is a great discussion. Great. Well, that's all for today, folks. What a fantastic conversation, as Dr. Lee said. I know I have a lot of great advice to bring back when I'm having conversation with patients, and I hope this helps all of our listeners to be advocates for themselves and take control of their health. Emily, Dr. Lee, thank you all so much for joining us today and bringing us back to the basics of living with heart failure. To all the listeners of the Heart Failure Beat Healthy Living podcast, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more patient-related content. Thanks for joining and have a great day. Mm -hmm.